Hello, everyone, and welcome to Know the Show, our music theater podcast where we deep dive into classic musicals one at a time. My name is Michael Fling. I am the Artistic Associate at Goodspeed Musicals, and I'm thrilled to be joined by my favorite pen pal, the one, the only, Annika Chapin, Signature Theater's Director of Artistic Development. Hi, Annika. Hi, Michael, my dear friend. My dear, dear friend. Um, I I know we said it at the end of the last episode, and I had many listeners reach out to be like, oh my gosh, are you doing this show? I think I know what show you're doing. I'm so excited. But this is like the Susan Lucci of our podcast. We talk about doing this show almost every time, and we're finally, finally doing it. Yes, we finally are doing it. And it is a thematic for the month in which this is released. Although it is, it is thematic to a few different months, actually. We've considered it for our Valentine's. For Valentine's. For like, what, what month have we not considered? Like, maybe it's the time. But why don't you remind us of the clue about what this show is um, uh, before we, if, in case people don't already know and didn't, you know, look at the title of the episode. Yes, indeed. <laughs> um, I know it's never really truly a mystery, is it? You know, at some uh, point, like maybe we should change our episode titles to be like funny things that we say in the midst of it. So there's a little bit more mystery about what show, but uh, I don't think it's really good. It's yeah. a resource. It's meant to be a resource. Anyway, continue. Yeah. Yes. So the clue for this show was that it shares DNA with three different rom-coms. And that is true. It It is based on a Hungarian play called Parfumery. Um, and that was adopt, adapted into the 1940 film, The Shop Around the Corner, the 1949 musical version in the good old summertime. And then uh, in 1998, You've Got Mail was made from the same thing. So they are not adaptations of each other necessarily, but they are all adaptations of the same source. I think this, and so this show would be. Oh, yes. Me. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to hop into like me talking about the shop around the corner. The show is She Loves Me uh, with a um, book by Joe Masteroff and music by Jerry Bach, Jerry Bach and Sheldon Harnick and Sheldon and lyrics by Sheldon Harnick. Um, I think that this particular story, like the shop around the corner story, Parfumery, She Loves Me, You've Got Mail, like uh, the Hallmark Christmas movie I just watched with friends a couple of days ago called Hanukkah on Rye. Tough. Starring Broadway's Jeremy Jordan. Tough. Um, But um, it's like the most, I think it's the most specific, like adapted story of all time. It's like, there are so many versions of this story that are unlike Cinderella that like goes back for centuries or like the stranger from out of town or like the various like stories that we do tell over and over and over again. This is like, it has to be like the most specific story that is told over and over and over again that like nobody knows <laughs> yeah. it's, it's so peculiar to me and yet it's so wonderful but it's such a weird like I yes thing I know exactly what you mean I was thinking that too that it is very much a trope now this sort of like they don't know that they're in love with each other but they think they hate each other um but also in their business like yes we're like so peculiar yeah, and I was trying to think of like whether Parfumery is truly like the first time that story appears in this way. And I think it is because it feels like the kind of thing where it's like it's an ancient Roman play where two people are like think that they hate each other, but really they don't know they love each other, you know. But I I don't I don't think so. I think it's this. Well, 
I mean, it is kind of like the, you know, the, the sparring lovers like is, you know, that like much do about nothing, like that goes back. Yeah, that's true. You got the much do about nothing. But the, the fact that it intersects with business and like with comp, like this competition kind of thing with like, that's, that's the thing that I think is like between you've got mail, Hanukkah on rye, like all these different (laughs) things. Like it's like, this is not, and like in the good old summertime, like it just, it's wild to me that it's like, oh, it feels so inventive when people like watch it, except it's been done a million and a half times. It's it's such an right. interesting thing. It's like yeah. Well, and and specifically though, not only the business thing, but the like they are communicating in a different medium. Yes, yes. Than they are in communicating face to face. So in some ways it's like you it's a very social media friendly story because now we're in a zone where like it's very common that people have entire personas on on online that are very different from their in-person personas. So it's kind of interesting that like, I guess you did need to have that element of it where like you could be, con- you could be essentially have a pen pal you didn't know. Yes. Um, like, I, I think that is such a key part of it. So I guess, I guess that makes sense that it's like, you're right. You're totally right for the much ado callback. Cause it is very Benedict and Beatrice. Yeah. Um, but that, and even they, I mean, have that little part about like they're betrayed by their own hand and they have their like the writing about each. Well, that's about each other, though. Anyway, but yeah, I guess you but need that so. element, which, yeah. yeah, which is something that you would need to have a relatively kind of modern framework for. Which is, we haven't really had like, I mean, again, except for Hanukkah and Rye, it's so bad. I like, I want to, <laughs> I've never actually watched a Hallmark movie prior to like a couple days ago. And I understand that there are people who love it. And that's like their entire, like, oh my, they love them. It's a wild, wild specific. It's such a wild thing to me that like these films are so bad. And like, yeah. And that's part of their charm, quote unquote. Like I literally was like, I should pitch a Hallmark movie. And I'm like, no, I think I would want too much quality. Like I'd be too concerned about quality. And that's actually like fundamentally not what they want at all. Like it's a- Mm -hmm. It's like their own regional theater of like, they have actors who are popular within the Hallmark universe that like, yeah. oh, it's like, oh, so-and-so or like, you know, whatever. It's like, well, anyway, whatever. Point. It's like a regional theater, but a but a TV yes, channel. But a TV channel. And it's like, yeah. we're just going to like do the same story. It's like, fit the word Christmas into anything. It's a Hallmark movie. And yeah. um, it surprises me that there's not a more like mainstream version like the last like modern version i guess is you've got mail but that we don't in the age of social media slash texting have the like oh we met you know somehow blindly on an app or something but we don't actually know what each other looks like and we're communicating and both like it's surprising that we haven't had that yet so i know i was thinking that too maybe it's our time to shine it's, we can write the hallmark time. movie there it is there it is yeah. um so with that that'll bring us to the speed test Hudson's I do my best to summarize the plot of She Loves Me in less than a minute. And I'm going to be honest and say, I feel like I'm not going to do very well with this. I think you could do this. I I think I'm getting lost in the weeds. Because there are a lot yeah. of things. There is a, for a, as simple, like, yeah, there's a simple way to do this. But, like, to actually accurately, like, recount the story... There were certain things I was like, oh my God, yeah, that happens. Oh yeah, that happens. Like yeah. it's if for as simple as it is, it's not simple at all. So we'll see. Yeah, that's that's a good point. All right. Well, let's see how you do. Okay, ready? Uh 12 days of Christmas, nine days of Christmas, one day to Christmas, 
go. So we have a Marichex perfumery, uh, which like all these people work at, right? So you've got George and uh, he's like, you know, our strapping, our strapping leading man. Uh, then, and basically, and Mr. Marichek owns it. Uh, and uh, then Amalia, Miss Amalia Valish comes in trying to get a job to sell things in this little like cute store. Uh, and she uh, gets the job, but then she and George are like, you know, competitors and competing all the time. All the while, they both have this like secretly relationship, like pen pal that they're writing to. They don't know is the other, as we've discussed. Um Alongside that, they like are going to meet up for dinner. George maybe gets fired from the perfumery um, because of all the Christmas. They're going to decorate for Christmas and da, 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 all this stuff. And uh, he goes to the restaurant. Like she goes to the restaurant to meet her, you know, dear friend. He shows up and realizes that she is the dear friend and then like basically ghosts her. Uh, and then act two is all about basically him kind of holding it over her. And then it's revealed that they are in love with each other. That's a minute. Okay. So. So you were correct. Uh, you Horrible. did not do great. <laughs> um, uh, I didn't even get to like Alona. <laughs> I didn't get to any of the side characters. Oh, die! I didn't get to anything. <laughs> I didn't get to our bad. Like Lucipo's, like nothing, nothing. Um, yeah. Terrible, terrible. Uh, That's yes, actually so maybe the worst I've ever done. Yeah, that that's not, that was not the best. Not the best. That's really bad. And it's not like I got things wrong. No, there's just your. You know what? You're right. It's it seems it's a deceptively simple story because it's not actually all that simple it's at all. Not. And so it's all around Christmas. Yeah, it is all around Christmas. That is true. You did get Kodai. That. Kodai is like the you know Lothario of the establishment, sleeping with everyone, including Marichek's wife evidently but also ilona um, yeah and uh yeah that's basically i guess the subplot and then little arpad who wants to be you know a instead of just delivery boy like in the shop right yes yes he so wants to be a clerk instead of just a delivery boy um, yeah so that's basically the plot yeah it's it's the people of this perfumery and centered around this love story um and various other mostly love stories also, but not always. Which is a great is a great transition to why God why. Why God? Why today? Where we talk about this show's big idea. What is the thing that's connecting all the characters? What's the protagonist's journey? How we interpret the question of what is the idea that is propelling the show. So I am giving a very general answer here, but I do think that this is basically like meditations on romance. And love. I think romance is probably a better term to use because there is like a certain romanticism that like kind of flows through the entire thing of everyone just from its like picturesque kind of Budapest um, kind of setting and everything um, to also like, you know, Marichek trying to keep romance with his wife alive. The kind of like all, all these different versions of, of romance and uh, love. Uh, so that's that's really all I got in terms of like the main thing propelling um but Annika for you like how are you how are you how do you think about the show's big idea yeah I mean I think that's I think that's certainly true it is definitely a, a unabashedly romantic show and uh, you get to see a lot of different versions of what it looks like to love someone and not not only just like romantic love I think friendship um I think the show also has something to say about kind of love showing love being an unexpected thing you know um 
like what what it means to love someone in terms of like what it can show you about yourself um what it can like how it can kind of like sh- transform you become yeah yeah how, how it can transform you but also like how it can be disguised as something that like really is looks like hate or looks like getting under your skin i think it's so interesting that from the get-go uh when george and amalia are like kind of butting heads and sipo says that line early to to arpad about like these are two people who like each other very much you know um so it isn't just that they like oh they hate each other psyche they love each other it's like even their kind of butting heads is a manifestation of them loving each other in some way um so I think that's that's part of it too. Is just the the many forms that love can take, and and what really like can be revealed by it. So with that, Annika, why don't you take us back to before and tell us about the origins of "She Loves Me." We can never go back to before. So yeah, so I wanted to talk for this section about the play that kind of inspired all of these different versions, and and the playwright. Um, who was a Hungarian playwright named Miklos Laszlo, although he was born Nicholas Leitner. And honestly, I'm not 100% sure why his name changed. Um, <laughs> it had to do with when he became an Americanized, a naturalized American citizen. Um, but it wasn't like assigned to him at Ellis Island. I think I was going to say, something. yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, <laughs> no, no. I think it was just sort of like a thing he chose at a certain point. Um, anyway, Miklos Laszlo. Um which is Laszlo is also the name of um, Arpad. It's Arpad's last name in uh, She Loves Me, which I think is a little, I think a little nod. Um, Has to be. Yeah, I think so, right? So anyway, so he was born, as I said, Nicholas Leitner in Budapest, um, and his family was in entertainment, um, and they were very wealthy. uh, And one of the things that I think is so interesting about this story is that while in Budapest, one of the people that they palled around with was the playwright Frederick Molnar, who wrote a play called Lilium, which might be familiar to the nerds among us, because it was turned into Carousel. Huge. Wow. Uh, yeah. Right. That makes so, sense. Makes sense. Yeah. So it's kind of it like kind of blows my mind a little bit to think that like in a beautiful Hungarian, you know, reception room. Um little tiny Miklos Laszlo uh, who would have been really like a kid at the time and Frederick Molnar were just like chilling and they could have talked about the classic musicals that were going to be made out of their future place, you know? All about romance and love. All about romance and love. (laughs) Spoiler alert for whenever we do uh, that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Not at all problematic or difficult uh, love. I love it. Um, Nice yeah right I, but anyway moving on not, not, not about that show <laughs> yeah right yeah um so as i said his family was wealthy uh and and this is in the early part of the uh 20th century he was born in 1903 so uh we're t- we're talking you know 1910s 1920s here um as i said his family was wealthy but his and so he he wrote plays since he was little but he never really needed to like focus too much on what his career would be except for then his father sort of squandered the fortune and died and then he had to pay the bills so he was taking on a series of odd jobs while he suddenly was having to write these plays um in the hopes that one would take off and then one of them did 
uh, and won the equivalent of the Pulitzer Prize in 1934 in Hungary. So that was kind of the launch of it. Um, and before he moved to New York, which he did in 1938 um, to avoid World War I, his family was Jewish. So that was obviously something that he was aware was was coming uh, in the future. Um, he wrote Parfumery, the play that became his greatest success. And that uh, premiered while he was still in Hungary in 1937. Um, and then after he came to New York, the play was adapted into the screenplay for The Shop Around the Corner pretty soon after he came to New York. So it was a pretty good like uh, introduction to his work and an introduction to America. Um, he became American. He married an American woman, um, really kind of set down roots there. And then, as I said, that play was adapted again uh, in 1949. It's a movie musical in the good old summertime, um, which starred Judy Garland and Van Johnson. Um, and then again, in you've with you've got mail in 1998. So that's by far his biggest success. And he he sort of like never achieved anything that was like at that level again. Um, he wrote some other plays and screenplays, but honestly, like was never like a super success. Um, and uh, Perfume Rue is definitely the most uh, successful one. Although if you go to Hungary, you will see his plays are still performed a lot of them just haven't been translated which is kind of interesting to think that like maybe there are some other things out there that could be as you know influential as this one that's um, interesting i know isn't that no. interesting you yeah know? Mm -hmm. someone get on that yeah i mean <laughs> i i assume honestly that like if they were very good they would have been translated into english but you know who knows there are lots of things that are like very good in other countries that we do not know about and then honestly there are playwrights who are very good in other countries that just don't have the success in america like alan acorn who's like a major british playwright who some of his plays have come over here but like He's like Neil Simon in, in the UK. And like those are in English, obviously. And, we, and it, they're still not that famous. So, you know, who knows? Anyway, but that is the story of uh, Mikos Laszlo, which, whose name, by the way, I'm probably butchering because there are a lot of little accents in it. And I'm not 100% uh, sure how to say those. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> apologies to the speaker of Hungarian. Yeah, who's out there just being horrified at me, my pronunciation here. We live, we laugh, we love, we grow. Mm -hmm. um, and that'll bring us to putting it together. Bit by bit, putting it together. Piece by piece, only way to make a work of art. Where we talk about how the show was literally put together. So the entire like thing of She Loves Me is actually quite difficult to find information on. The best, like because it is a little bit of a cult musical, and I think there are some like sources because of its recent like successful revival and things that are like oh it's a mainstream hit now and like it's absolutely not and i just want to be clear i just don't think that that is the case yet i would love for that to be the case but i don't think it is um which we'll discuss a little bit later but i think but ultimately the best source that i found on this is a book about bach and harnick that is called to broadway to life the musical theater of bach and harnick um by philip lambert which is a great resource and the most like authoritative thing that i've found um alongside some really great blog posts actually online um that i'm blanking the name uh the name of the guy um who uh wrote a really in-depth blog post about music directing she loves me that was like really interesting and i saved for future if i ever get to do she loves me because it has a lot of interesting information in it um and i will drop his name in the show notes we're actually so this like adaptation of the shop around the corner into 
a musical had actually been in the works for a little while. And there were a lot like Cy Fuhrer was involved at one point and a number of producers had the rights. Um, and Cole Porter even worked on it at one point um, before it landed in the lap of um, Bach and Harnick. And so they actually dropped, they were working um, at the time a lot on Fiddler and they chose to drop that because it was like their passion project at the time, basically, and actively work on what someone was handing them, which would become She Loves Me. And so Harnick actually suggested Joe Masteroff to write the book after being impressed with his play, The Warm Peninsula on Broadway a few seasons earlier. Um, and it was Masteroff's first musical. So he was like, I don't really know like what to do. And they're like, you know what? Just like write a play and then we will like musicalize what we want. And in that way, he was a really like willing and um, willing, open collaborator, which I thought was really interesting, um, but also kind of funny because obviously, as Annika talked about, it's based on a play uh, The it's based on perfumery. So as you start to like unpack the history of the show, it becomes clear that like perfumery is not like yes why it is the basis basis of um the musical she loves me but really the shop around the corner is like where it takes a lot of its um inspiration from because masteroff was not super familiar with perfumery and in harnick's recollection the only one who really did have like a reference point for the play and know the play and have read it and stuff was himself like master off really didn't. So they primarily worked off the screenplay in a lot of ways. And I don't know like if they actually had the rights to it, that's a little like um, shaky in all of this, but um, so that they begin this process of musicalizing it um, as Harnick and uh, Bach talk about it. And there's a great interview with them too, after like a television broadcast of like a TV adaptation of the movie from the seventies um, that like, it just like drips with music, like the entire master off draft. They were just like, Oh my God, we heard music everywhere. So there's almost like too much music. Um, so that's all in process. They go to George Abbott to direct it, who considered it for a, a long time, but ultimately passed um, he was pretty busy at the time. And um, they went to then Gower Champion to direct it, who was working on another project and asked if they would wait for him. And they were like, actually, like, no, we're not going to wait. And so they turned to um, Hal Prince, who was their friend, but also now a producer of the show, had signed on as a co-producer, which he talks about a little bit in his own um, book about his life. Um, and post Tenderloin, which was a musical that Harnick and Bach had written together, Harnick decided that he really wanted to be more involved in the shaping of the book and the story of his musicals, because Tenderloin, I guess, was kind of a mess, and I don't really know it that well, but I kind of want to get to know it. Um, so, and that it likely has a lot to do um, with how She Loves Me was formed, because like I said, he was the one who had um, knowledge of the original play. And so, um, but Masteroff does get credit for making the shop. Um, and in like the information that I found, Masteroff is the one responsible for taking the shop and putting it back into the perfumery because in Shop Around the Corner, it's a leather shop, which I didn't know. Um, and, but, and someone is quoted somewhere, I believe it's Masteroff is saying, like, how are you going to rhyme anything with leather? Like, you got to have perfumery. It's a more interesting, like, setting. Um, and he's also credited with keeping the secondary love story. Um, which is from the original, like the original play um, of a woman who works in the shop finding love outside the shop. And this becomes like Alona and Kodai. 
So a lot, um, as I said, a lot of the show was like dripping. Um, a lot of the master off draft was like dripping with music as I thought. So a lot of the score actually like uh, the score as we know it appears in the initial playbill of the New Haven tryout. Um, but by the time they get to Philadelphia, Alona and Vanilla Ice Cream are added to the score. Uh, apparently ice cream came to Harnick while he was watching um, the scene play out in front of an audience and had had this idea for the song for a while, but didn't understand how to make it work. And then saw the scene in front of an audience is like, Oh, I know how to make it work. So they wrote vanilla ice cream and the scene previously had a song called the touch of magic, which was inspired by one of master of monologues. Um, and so when they cut the touch of magic and put vanilla ice cream in, they put that monologue back in the show. Um, and then according to this interview that they that they did, they cut, you know, their recollection is they cut up to like 45 minutes of music from the show during the out of town tryout. And there's a lot of like forward movement. Um, the three letter sequence is um, put in during the out of town tryouts um, to much success. And like um, Barbara Cook talked about, like actually feeling the show get better as um, as they were in tryouts. And that's not always the case. Um, but one of the sad losses um, it's a song called Tell Me I Look Nice, which was for Amalia and was written in 5-4 time and apparently was a favorite of Stephen Sondheim, which I thought was fun to drop in. Uh, and then uh, one of the harder also goodbyes was the original goodbye song for Kodai in Act 2 was called My Drugstore, which apparently like absolutely was killing with audiences. Jack Cassidy was like slaying um, and it was really stopping the show, but they felt like it was too mean spirited. And so they replaced it with Grand Knowing You, which they felt was more in the vein of the other character songs they had for everyone else and was just a little nicer in tone. Um, so yeah, then it goes to it goes to Broadway and it gets kind of, you know, a lot of people talk about it getting like very good reviews. Some people say it got very tepid reviews or just like, oh, this was nice and pleasant. Um, Hal Prince kind of blames the lack of run on a number of factors, but um, basically that the show was too gentle and just a little different than what Broadway was going for at the time. Um, a little out of step with the times. I, I, I'm sympathetic to it. And like, obviously those people were there and they were living it. So I feel like they have a better understanding of like what Broadway is slash was. Um, but I also feel like it's not like out of keeping with the time of Broadway. Like it is a delightfully old fashioned musical and it's like 1963. So I don't know. I'm, I'm a little skeptical on that. Um, but the other thing that I think I maybe knew at one point, but I didn't know. And, um, I know we'll we'll talk about this a little bit later was that um, initially Julie Andrews actually really wanted to star as Amalia, um, but she had just gone to Hollywood. She was in the middle of making her second movie, The America's Nation of Emily at the time. And she's like, oh, if you just like hold off, I'll come do it like in the fall. Um, but they didn't want to hold off. And they they found Barbara Cook and were very happy with Barbara Cook. And she was actually brought in pretty early to the process. Um, but um, essentially like that. It, like Hal Prince is like, well, if we had waited for Julie Andrews, she was like, she became like a bona fide star. And like, we probably would have run for three years if we had, had Julie Andrews' name on it, which is interesting and fascinating because also there's a movie later that was maybe going to be made with her that didn't get end up getting made. And that's a whole other thing. Um, but fascinating to like think about it in those terms. So there are a lot of things that that factor into it has a respectable 300 run, um, like length, 300 performance run. Um, but it doesn't really get a lot of acclaim and it kind of fades into the background until um, it's very um, successful revival in the 90s produced by Roundabout Theater Company in celebration of um, it's like they're not even celebration. It was like their first. That's the later one. It was like their first musical that they'd ever produced. And it was a huge hit for them. Um, and it really opened up like Roundabout doing a lot of revivals. But that revival with Boyd Gaines and 
uh, Judy Kuhn as Amalia, which is like, you know, a great recording and was kind of the recording that people listened to for a long time until this most recent revival in 2016, which is as a celebration of Roundabout's 50th anniversary, which was also highly acclaimed, filmed for PBS, did win um, a Tony for its set design. Um, and I think probably in a lot of other years would have won a lot of Tonys because it was very celebrated and very successful. Uh, but ultimately, that was like the year of Hamilton and the killer revival of Color Purple. So it was a little bit like shifted to the side in what was a very strong Broadway season. Um, so, yeah. And then it was filmed for PBS and then shown in theaters at a various point and has gotten a little bit more of cultural recognition, I think, because of all of that. But. It is still like um, a very under-celebrated show that uh, not a lot of people know. So, Annika, why don't you take us into the words and show us what's inside tonight at eight? What's inside? Everyone wants to know what's inside. So, there are a lot of songs in this show that I could have chosen because really, Bach and Harnick are such masters at writing songs that are gifts to the actors who perform them truly because they are so rich with character and they are so specific about what is going on for those characters a lot of them it, they feel kind of like monologues um and this is one that i especially love because i feel like it is such a glimpse into George. It gives us more about him than we've known before, um, specifically like how insecure he is on a deep level, which is really valuable considering he sometimes is kind of a jerk. Um, but also I think this song specifically is in some ways sort of actor proof because even if you had a bad actor who was singing the song, the music gives you such a glimpse into the state that this character is in that you you almost cannot not get it you know um but of course if you have a good actor it's it's just amazing so let us dive in into uh tonight at eight and just some setup this is the song that george sings on the day that he's finally going to meet the woman he's been corresponding with it's earlier in the morning he's uh got a few hours before it happens uh he's already had a tense exchange with marichek and sipos the wonderful sipos has asked george basically like what's going on with him and specifically, Sipos says that George is vibrating, which is such a great word to describe this state and one that this song really borrows from um, quite a bit. So we will hear that vibration right away. I'm nervous and upset because this girl I've never met, I get to meet tonight at eight. So I'm starting with a little tiny chunk because there's a lot right in the, the top of the song. So the beginning really illustrates that idea of vibration, as I said. It's just one note literally vibrating in the air. And it's tense, but it also feels like the music is waiting for him to answer the question of what's going on with him. Is he excited? Is he miserable? It's like waiting for its cue from George. And while it stays up there, George's melody is unaccompanied and lower. Um, so he's going to really be telling the music where to go, basically, with, with what he's going to say. And he sings, I'm nervous and upset. So right away, we have something that's going to be a hallmark of this song, which is contrast. He's saying he's nervous and upset, but this music doesn't really sound upset. It sounds tense and a little excited and waiting. And of course, he's all of these things. There's so much that's just crashing together in George and also in the song. And then, of course, we get to the meat of it, which is that he's going to meet this mystery woman. And when he sings that, the orchestration does these little hops, which are so great. 
they sound like little fluttery heartbeats and they're jumping around all around the melody. They can't sit still. And it's a beautiful musical illustration of Georgia's state. He can't sit still either. I'm taking her for dinner to a charming old cafe, but who can eat tonight at eight? So after these little hops, the music really picks up and we get this fast churning undercurrent to the music. It's almost a little faster than his melody. So it feels like he can't quite catch up. It's like musical breathlessness. And this is what I mean about this song being sort of actor proof. Like, even if you're just saying what you're supposed to be singing, it's going to sound like you're in a, a bit of a state because this music is so fast. It's just behind you. And, and it, it like isn't this melody isn't quite situated comfortably on that uh, music behind it and that's great because we're getting this sense of like his brain is one place his stomach is another place his his heart is another place we're hopping all over the place um, we really really understand what it is to be in this state of agitation that he's in and anxiety and I love that some of that hopping is in the harps in this orchestration harp is one of the most romantic instruments it's usually you know the the love songs so the fact that it's here is kind of illustrating one of the possibilities that he's he's like hoping that this is a romantic beautiful thing but it's all still hopping over the place it's like he's a romantic but he's a mess it's early in the morning and our date is not till eight o'clock tonight and yet already i can see what a nightmare this whole day will be so although we've gotten these different flavors in the orchestrations, we haven't gotten much of a change in his melody line. But here we do, and it's this great jump up to a higher note that he then sort of steadily falls off of getting lower and lower in these steps. It's like he's jumping to this high, excited place, but then convincing himself everything is going to absolutely fall apart. He's musically falling off a cliff. And that's, of course, what he is doing. He ends it with, what a nightmare this whole day will be. He's he's equal parts so excited to meet this woman that he's basically in love with and also terrified because he's convinced that he's going to ruin it and it's going to go terribly. So it's the two contrasting parts of his heart. And uh, we get this contrasting opposites here. This is the first one, um, night and day. Uh, but there will be a lot of other ones, up and down, more or less, begun, ended. George is feeling so many contrasting feelings. Harnick has very cleverly put that in these lyrics, even if they're not overtly about him. They get the sense that they're all over the place, right? The they're it's not in the middle. It's it's extreme on one level and extreme on the other. I haven't slept a wink. I only think of our approaching tete-a-tete tonight at eight. I feel a combination of depression and elation. What a state to wait till eight. Oh, so good. We're getting all this nervousness and excitement again, but now with something a little new on depression and elation, which is, of course, another of those contrasts, and sets us up for the frustration of what is state till wait till eight. He's sort of, as much as he, inside of all of this spinning stuff, he also can acknowledge that he's like a mess and he's he has to just go through this time. And and I love the rhythm of this song too, because it's so like stop and start. It's so uneven. It, it jumps all over the place too. Everything in this song is telling the same story, which is that George is just such a, a vibrating mess of feelings right now. And it's really great. Three more minutes, two more seconds, 10 more hours to go. In spite of what I've written, she may not be very smitten and my hopes perhaps may all collapse kaput tonight at eight. 
I really love this countdown here of how much time it remains before this date because Sheldon Harnick has done such a clever thing here. Normally a person in a normal mental state would start with the largest measurement of how much time there is to go. Hours, right? You'd go hours, minutes, seconds, if you're going to include seconds. But Harnick has completely scrambled it here. It starts with minutes, then it's seconds, then it's hours. It's not even reversed. It's like this, the, the middle measurement, then it's the tiniest measurement, then it's hours. Um, it's such a funny illustration of just how scattered George is. You know, he's he's not focusing on anything and he's not thinking straight. Um, and then we get this brilliant line, hopes, perhaps, you know, kaput, collapse, kaput. It's like all of these lines are jumping back and forth and playing off each other, these sounds. Hopes, haps, collapse, kaput. Like they're, it's kind of like a ping-ponging of sounds. And it again, it's another sign of this like mess that he is. Um, and I love that at the end of this little verse, there's no minute to breathe. There's no punctuation at the end uh, after tonight to eight. It, the music just keeps right on going with this like, doom, 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 doom. like he, nothing is stopping, right? He, he's not, he's not stopping anything. Even when the line is kind of ending, he's still in that state, right? There's, there's no escape for him. I wish I knew exactly how I'll act and what will happen when we dine tonight at eight. I know I'll drop the silverware, but will I spill the water or the wine tonight at eight? Tonight I'll walk right up and sit right down beside the smartest girl in town, and then it's anybody's guess. More and more, I'm breathing less and less. I just love the line more and more and breathing less and less. It's such an it's such a funny, unexpected thing to say. And of course, very fun for someone who's performing it to kind of you know get that sense of like I don't have the breath to sing this song um if you want to go there so after the last verse you don't know necessarily where it's going to go next and it goes right back to this George fretting about what he's going to do wrong um and I really love this that this is the insight into a part of George we really haven't seen yet we've seen him be very together he's kind of the manager of this perfumery um, he's not having inappropriate affairs with his coworkers. He's a little bit like blunt, if anything. Um, this is a character that we could, ex we might expect to be a little bit more, um, of a jerk, frankly, but he's not, he's, he's imagining this night with this woman that has never met him and he's never met and he's not going at all to a place of like, what is she going to be like? Is she pretty enough? Will I like her? Um, she, he is, and he said it in the scene before that like, she's she's brilliant and she's wonderful. And he he's immediately thinking that it is him who is not going to live up to the expectations. And he's going to, he's going to mess this date up in a really spectacular way. He's so insecure. And it's really, really charming because it's not what, it gives us the emotional, it's a very endearing, it gives us the emotional um, knowledge we need to go into this date that he's going to have. And kind of, frankly, some not great behavior with Amalia when, he, when they are a little bit sparring. We need to know that this is who he really, really is. Um, and it's very important that we get that. And then, of course, in this little chunk, we get more of the contrast. We get walk right up and sit right down, up and down, which is just a funny thing. Walk right up and sit right down. And, you know, it's like it's so perfectly set. Um, and then, of course, more and more and less and less. 
In my imagination, I can hear our conversation taking shape tonight at eight. I'll sit there saying absolutely nothing, or I'll jabber like an ape tonight at eight. When this is done, if something's ended or begun, and if it goes, all right, who knows, I might propose tonight at eight. So the end of this is uh, one final contrast, of course, ended or begun, um, which is very true, right? Either this is ended or begun. It's either the end of this little romance or it's like maybe the beginning of him finding the person. Um, and it just, again, I mean, it's more of him imagining his being a complete doofus and awkward and he's spilling the wine and now he's just not talking and he's not saying anything. Um, and I, I deeply, deeply also love that the thing that he says about her here is that she's the smartest girl in town. Um, it is not necessarily a common thing from musicals at this era to value women's intelligence over other traits and this is a really interesting show that way because it really does I mean um this is what George loves about this woman like she's they've been communicating he has never seen her he doesn't know anything about her um and he doesn't care as we see in this song what she looks like you know this is not at all about anything other than the fact that he is completely smitten with the brain of this woman he's been interacting with. And I just really love that so much. And again, it's another thing that makes us love him. He's the fact that he's so insecure, he's this complete mess, um, just convinced that he's not worthy of this woman. Uh, and also that he just thinks that she's not worthy of her basically because she's so great, you know? And that also gives us something about Amalia where like we haven't quite seen all of that part of her either like we've seen her be a little bit more awkward frankly in life um so we're getting a glimpse of what he loves about her um and all of these little facets are are going to be so valuable for us to watch their love story play out and to know that these true pe two people who who you know sometimes seem like they really don't like each other are meant to be together. They really are. And it's it's such a great song. It's so wonderful. It's so illustrative of that kind of chaos that's going on in his brain and in his heart. And it's just a joy and such fun. Um, and I think of this song a lot when I'm in a specifically uh, anxious moment because it really is the soundtrack to great anxiety and excitement and also the misery of having to wait for something that is has such high stakes. So it's it's a really it's a gem in a song in a show full of gems. And that'll bring us to one of our favorite segments. How do you solve a problem like Maria? How do you solve a problem like Maria? Where we talk about some of the issues with She Loves Me, both internally and externally. <clears throat> so there I, I think in general, She Loves Me is often put into this like upper for it's not super known outside of like musical theater nerd circles in a lot of ways it is a hidden gem we'll get to that it is put but i say that because for certain like scholars thinkers types intellectuals in theater it is put into that like a list category of like near perfect near perfect show um i think that that is accurate and right with one glaring <laughs> glaring to me um <clears throat> Part, which is like 
this surprise suicide slash like the dark underbelly of like Marichek as a character and how he literally attempts suicide and then Arpad in like we don't hear about it's like oh like panel it's like that like last moment before the cafe scene in act one and then like we open act two and he's like in hospital and <laughs> Arpad's like hey give me a better job. And it's just like, we never actually addressed the fact that uh, he tried to commit suicide and why. Um, and just his entire kind of thing feels a little forced to me. I guess the one, Annika, my question would be, do you agree with that? That it feels a little forced. And two, like, how, how do you, how do we contend? How do you contend with it? I don't even know like the answer to that. Cause it is, it feels like it, I remember the first time I read the show and the first time I saw it, I was like, this is a hard left. Like what? This just feels like a really hard left turn. And I'm not quite sure how you really get there. Um, and I feel like it's just anti it's like antithetical to the rest of the spirit of like, what is ultimately like not a dark show. It is quite like, it's a little confection. I like the show is just such a lovely little you know, I, it just feels very like, what? Um, in the middle of it. So how do you feel about it? I guess is, well, I'll just, I'll phrase it that way. How do you feel about it? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't disagree. I think that it's, I mean, I, I think my, my biggest thing about it is that it, it just comes, it feels like it comes out of nowhere. Like the show does a good job at setting up how much Marichek loves his wife with the beautiful, you know, days gone by. Um, so, so it does a good job of establishing that like his relationship with his wife is like a, a very important thing to him. And then obviously you get the scene with the like little investigator who's saying that he, he's, she's having an affair. So you have those two elements, but like, it still feels like such a dark thing um and also like we live in a different era i think when something like suicide is for us uh i mean not that it was ever like a light fluffy thing but like you know it it in there i feel like in in earlier times you could have a character attempt suicide and have it sort of be like oh it's he's fine it was just a moment of like you know whatever and now it's like it's you're like oh this person is having like suicide the suicide attempt cannot come without the, the discussion of sort of like mental health issues which never happens in the show it's sort of like kind of um treated as like oh he missed he got his his arm you know and i, I think about something like a little night music where uh there is also like a kind of gun going off and like there's no suicide, but you get the sense that like Frederick is like in a, in a similar, like Anne has run off. She, he is like in a state. So he's willing to play this like crazy game of Russian roulette with um, Carl Magnus that I think handles it a little bit better. You get a little bit more of a sense that he's like in a mental state that he's going to like, okay, fine. He's going to play this dumb game with Carl Magnus, who is a psychopath. Right. Basically. Right. So like anything violent and like, you know, then he misses and it's sort of comedy that he misses. Um, so I think that's, a, that's a kind of more uh, nuanced way to handle it. This, I think it, it is, it is a tough one. Because also, like, the thing is, you you don't really, I the problem with 
foreshadowing it more is that then we're going to be more worried about Myron Check's mental health in a way that it's harder to come back from. So I almost feel like, I don't know, like there is, I, I almost feel like what, to borrow a page from the Little Night Music book where it's like, he's not really like intending to shoot himself in the head. He is intending to sort of like, he's just in such a like dark state. And then it's kind of like he agrees to a stupid game that goes terribly wrong. You know, something like that, where it's like one step away from like, I am going to right. shoot myself. Um would be a little bit helpful because it does it does come as a as a shock and i will say like this is not a treacly script like there there is definitely it it is a script that doesn't shy away from things that are a little bit harsher like the way that george and amalia talk about each other sometimes is harsh like there's some there's some stuff in there that really balances out um the sweetness of it so it's not that I think that it's like completely out of keeping with the show. It just feels like it, it is two steps darker than anything else in the show. And then um, and then it's pulled back from so quickly in terms of like, ah, you know, he's he's just, you know, Arpad's going to sing him a song in a in a hotel room. Uh, I mean, upbeat, in a hospital room. Like, yeah, an upbeat, an upbeat act two opener. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh -huh. It just is so like. Yeah, it just feels so like, I, and I don't know, I, I don't know as a director, like how I'd even deal with it. Like the, the recent revival, like, you know, I remember like there was just like a red wash and then suddenly like we were in the cafe, like they kind of used it as a like, yeah, a transition to the cafe kind of thing, which I thought was pretty effective. But even so, I still was like, God, it just is like, whoo, that's, I know. it just feels like not, well, yeah. And I think it, it, he thinks it's George and maybe like that is a way that you like he feels so betrayed by George, who is like his son, like maybe is that like, but I don't know how you do all that without like text to support. You know what I mean? Like it's. It, yeah. It, it, and it's just, yeah. It's tough. And the show clearly wants you to think that he maybe has succeeded because it's like the gunshot and then the contrast straight into the restaurant, you know. So it, it's not even letting you off the hook in terms of like you can show that he like missed. I mean, I guess that's one option where you if you don't if it's not just that he goes to the back room and you don't see him when you sort of like you see his silhouette and you can kind of see that he's like tried and failed. I mean, that doesn't really fix it. But um, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm trying to remember Signature did a really beautiful production of this uh, two seasons ago. And I know that 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 this very thing was a was a challenge to Matt Gardner who directed it, um, and I think ultimately he did the. I mean, I think he just did the. I'm trying to remember exactly what happened, but I think I think it was sort of like the same. It was he was off stage and you transitioned into the cafe. Yeah, because like you just kind of have. I mean, because in some ways it's like it, you, yeah, you can't like deal with it. But like what you're saying, the more you like highlight it or try to like solve it the more like problematic or weird it becomes in the, in a way. So like, mm -hmm. just like get through it quickly. <laughs> like, and yeah. it's, cause like, I think the show, I, I, it's disappointing. I think because for me, because I think the show is so excellent outside of that. Like I have like almost no, no notes. Although you do like, I, please discuss your timeline questions within she loves me because I, I do, I, I'm sure I agree, but I'm, I'm curious what you're going to say. Well, so this is just always something. I mean, this is kind of a silly thing because it's like, who cares, really? It's in the who cares file. 
Um, but I, I always find it amusing that like, and I, I think I'm right about this. I, I could be wrong, but so they're, they're decorating for Christmas. They have to stay late. Um, George has the blow up with Marichek. He is fired. Amalia goes off to the restaurant. Marichek sends everyone home early because of the investigators coming. The investigator says, yes, indeed, it's one of your clerks. Um, he, as we've talked about, goes, shoots himself. Restaurant scene, George and Amalia. The end of Act One. Then the next day, Marichek is in the hospital and he says to Arpad, what did what did they say about last night? What did you tell them about last night? And it was like I was you were cleaning your gun, right? So it's like we know that only one day has passed. And George comes in and he gives him his job back, and that happens. My question is really so Ilona comes in and says and has gone to the library. She's like, yes. I went, I was going to go to the movies, but then I went to the library. And I'm like, what library is open at like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yes. like yes. so much happens in the like 12 hours between <laughs> nine and, and, and it's funny because it's, it's like, like they're nine very o'clock. specific. Yeah, they're specific about time because because Kodai has that thing about like, I thought it was going to be a later night, but it's only 9.30. I got to go to my other thing. So like, I, maybe Hungary is just like a very nocturnal place and you get like 24-hour libraries. But I'm like, where? So all of this happens like in the this 12 hours of between then you know them leaving this store and the next morning i mean really it's only a it's a only an alona thing because it that's the one where i'm like you this what <laughs> like well but, it's interesting also like the, the majority of the action the actual action of the story happens over like one that one day right but then you yeah. also have these like sequences where time is changing rapidly like yeah. it's like an interesting it's like you have like the first day where amalia gets hired and then we like flash forward through seasons and yeah right christmas and then we do the, like are about to be christmas winter and then or fall i guess but then uh like then we do this like extended long yeah hour period basically and then we're gonna jump forward to Christmas, <laughs> yeah. which is just a peculiar, like it's yeah. interesting and peculiar. It's I don't think that's a problem necessarily, but it is interesting that you then bring up. I mean, because yeah, a trip that's a late trip to the library. The late. It's trip. just just that that library is keeping some some. It's like the mission from Guys and Dolls, where it's like it's doing a midnight library. But at least you know, Guys and Dolls is calling it out. It's saying, "Hey, we're doing." Oh yeah, this. you know, it's we're like a midnight <laughs> thing. We're getting the gamblers. <laughs> Not the same, not the same, not the same as you. Yeah. So let's let's transition and talk about like this show's status as like a hidden gem of of musical theater. So and and why, you know, I guess I have a theory as to why this is. I have a very strong theory as to why this is. Um I mean, it's as we kind of as I like talked about in putting together, it's not a success initially. It gets a cast recording and like has some like stock kind of productions and things, but like it's not done outside of like had Roundabout not revived it in like whatever 93, 94, whenever that like first revival was. I don't know how much we would really be talking about She Loves Me because part of the reason they did it again recently is because they did it 
that was the first like musical they'd ever done. So like in some ways, like the roundabout theater company is the reason that people know about She Loves Me in some ways, or at least why a substantial portion of people know about it now. Um, and then like PBS. Um, but like, Annika, why do you think the show kind of has this like hidden gem status? Like what, what and it doesn't sell, like people don't do it. Or there's been a theory for a long time among theater theaters, regional theaters and otherwise that like, well, studio Lesson doesn't sell because, you know, no, nobody knows what it is or whatever. But like, why do you think that is? Why do you think it didn't quite catch on? You know, I honestly don't know. I mean, it's really a mystery to me. It's a delightful piece. It's romantic. It's funny. The score is like full of one banger after another. Like there, there's, it should be much better known than it is. I really, sometimes there are shows where I'm like, oh, I love that show, but I get why it's not as famous as, as you know, I love it. Um, you know, it's not as famous as I, I wish it were. Um this one I really struggle with. I mean, I guess it is because, like, I, I feel like we are, you know, our culture is a culture where fame is itself, like, considered a hallmark of quality. So, mm-hmm. you know, the more well-known something is, the more well-known it will remain because people know it and then they want to see it. And, you know, I think we've we've talked about plenty of shows that are sort of not fantastic, but, like, they are beloved. Um you know, I think like Camelot is a really good example of that. Like that show is a mess. Yeah, that is a mess. That show for a number of reasons that we will probably talk about on this podcast eventually. But like the memory, no, we, did, of we did Camelot. We talked about it. Oh my god, we did. <laughs> oh Jesus. Oh Jesus. Um, yeah. So as we talked about on that episode, apparently, like you know, the memory of Camelot, I think, is actually what's responsible for the success of Camelot in a lot of ways because people remember it more fondly than I think they the show actually deserves because the show itself is kind of a mess yes um this is kind of the opposite I feel like it's it's not a mess um it's beautifully constructed it's great but because wrong score I mean mean, the score is amazing it's a fantastic like everything about it yeah surprise suicide (laughs) surprise suicide yeah um so so i think that that i think it's just kind of begetting itself in some ways it's like a vicious circle of people people haven't heard of it so they don't go to see it so they haven't heard of it so they don't go to see it you know um maybe that's my best guess what do you think well so one it's in a it's in like one of those like historically packed times of broadway that like you know i think it's year that it I I believe the year it came out on Broadway was the same year of like Hello Dolly, Funny Girl, like within within a certain stretch, like and the the season it was in, it was like literally competing against those other two like behemoth shows that we have already talked about on this podcast um, that are you know star making of Barbara Streisand and then like one of the biggest hits of all time in Hello Dolly. So there's that, but then. <clears throat> it you know it only runs like 300 performances like it just doesn't find it just doesn't really find an audience on broadway that like makes it run and last really like it's i think a respectful run but it doesn't make its profit like it it doesn't turn a profit um and then like it just kind of gets lost in like oh the next musical bach and harnick did is fiddler on the roof which comes out like you know only like maybe a year later a number of months later it's not that you know far off so i i do think that that has like I think that's part of it. 
I think the worst thing that ever happened to She Loves Me is that a movie was not made of it. Yeah. I think if there, and, and I, when it's kind of one of my favorite things, but it's like, this is one of my favorite, just like bits of trivia um, to like throw out at random gatherings of people, um, of theater people. There was supposed to be a film of She Loves Me in the 60s that was going to be directed by Blake Edwards, starring Julie Andrews and Dick Van Dyke as a reunion piece from my from um from Mary Poppins in the late 60s. And then as like, you know, musicals started to do less and less business at the box office, like it got like shelled and was killed basically. And like a studio, as like studio heads were changing, it was like, no, that's not happening. And I think that's a real tragedy because I think even if that movie were like a B level movie, even if it weren't that good if it existed like for $5 at Walmart for the last 20, 30 years, people would know it, it would be like, Oh yeah, that's like a thing. It's like, Oh, like some people would know it in a larger cultural context. Um, particularly with those two in it, but and who also I think would have been, I mean, obviously I'm a Julie Andrews, like nut, she would be absolutely brilliant. And he would yeah. be fantastic as George. Like it would be so, and like, and like Edward's, would is a great person to direct it like i can't imagine that it wouldn't have been a delightful delightful little movie um and i think that's like the worst thing that happened to it because i think even if it were like not that great a movie it would just like make that title recognition just a little bit more i mean like god we basically like you know thoroughly modern millie was like a success at the time when it came out like in like as a movie but then like nobody knew about it really it wasn't like broadly known until like they decided to make it into a musical but that's all it's only kind of known because it's like oh carol channing julie andrews and mary tyler moore were in a thing together like yeah it's it barely like it it barely is known and now like the musicals kind of eclipsed it whatever i do feel like that would have changed this show's like the history and its trajectory like insane i mean like yeah plenty of mediocre musicals that get made Media, and this is not a mediocre musical. There are plenty of mediocre musicals that get made into movies and then are continued produced by high schools and community theaters and things because people know what they are. Because people know it. And, and it's, it's a movie. And like, I think that's the worst thing that happened to it. I, that's my belief as to why it's a hidden gem. And you know what? Frankly, someone should make it a movie now because I, I desperately, desperately want to make it a movie. Yeah. If also, I ever got to make movies, I would do it. Yeah. Also, because it's just, it's a visually rich. Yes. Show like and so the jewel box that you could make of that set and the and the perfumery, it, it would just be a lovely, intimate, like beautiful Christmas movie. And honestly, like somebody do that and but put the songs and have a director who knows how to do a musical because honestly, I'm I'm tired of watching films that don't. And then you can make a trailer that makes it not look like a musical because apparently that's what happens now. You see Mean Girls. Don't Although, get me started. They have now, they have now um, I think, edited the trailer so that or they've edited the logo so that there's a music note in the uh, in the logo. And I was like that in the title treatment. I was like, please. But um, yeah, truly, anyone who's listening, if you want to give me a deal, a deal, a deal at any movie studio, Netflix or otherwise, my first project pitch would be She Loves Me, the film. Like, yes. because I think you can Although, do it small and intimate and like almost like a almost like a um, like an indie, an indie film version of it that is intimate and and lovely and cute and all the things. And happy yes, shit. Yes. Although I would also like to say, I don't think that this is necessarily responsible for the lack of success of this show. But man, if you 
and we've talked about this a little bit on the podcast, some of these great classic shows have really bad titles. And I think that She Loves Me is a bad title for this show. Why is it called She Loves Me? I mean, obviously the song, the big song is She Loves Me, but like that's, it's about two people with this relationship. So it's not even like a, like George and, you know, I, I don't know. It, to me, it's not like perfumery is a much better <laughs> title. Really? I don't know. And I don't, know I don't that, like it. I don't, it's like funny, it. I don't know that I agree with that. Really? You think it's a good title? I don't think it's a good title. I think it's a good title. I mean, I don't think I would go for Parfumery as the other title. I well, I just feel like it's, I mean, maybe I'm just being too dramaturgically pedantic, but like, she I mean, loves honestly, me it feels would, a little bit I like. Would, if Dear Friend weren't like a downer of a song, I would say it should be called Dear Friend. Yeah, that's a better, that makes more sense. But there's a downer. And, and it sounds a little twee for the show um, on its own, like out of context. But yeah. How interesting. Yeah, I guess it had to be, I guess it just had to be because they, I mean, yeah, talk about, we really should just have like the other terrible title. What Camelot was like, um, the problem with Jenny or something or what Jenny's. Yeah. Some terrible, I, I, it's in the podcast, I don't remember, but. Um, yeah. I mean, even some of the big ones, like we talked about, but Fiddler on the Roof, it's like a very weird title for. Makes no sense. For the show. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, anyway. Um, so, but I, that's interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know that I would blame the title. Although it's funny because I'll use a title. I'll blame a title for lots of things. I, yeah. I don't know that we've talked about this on the podcast. I don't know if we've, I've ever shared this opinion on the podcast. I think we've talked about it at various points. Where I'm like, oh, the number of musicals that I think would have better lives if they just had a better title. Yeah. And that's not just because You're in Town said it. You know what I mean? <laughs> I know. <laughs> not just because You're in Town was right. <laughs> Too much exposition. That can kill a show pretty good. All right. Um, is that, is that our favorite? Is that is it a good transition to our favorite things? I think so. Let's let's get on to our favorite things. These are a few of my favorite things. Where we talk about some of our favorite things in She Loves Me. So, who is your favorite character in? Also, we talked about the score being strong. So many great characters in She Loves Me. Yeah, like, what a fantastic ensemble of character. Like actually. If you were going to ask for like a power ranking of like best set of characters in a musical, I actually really think She Loves Me is like probably top, definitely top five, but maybe even like top three, if not the best. Like they all have a good, at least a good song. Like everybody yeah. gets like a moment and they're fully, I think, pretty, anyway, sorry, that's, you know. No, no, no. But no, what but of your, of the well-rounded developed characters and She Loves yeah. Me. Yeah. Um, and I think you make a very good point, which we probably should have made earlier too, which is that this this score is amazing, but also it is a lot of uh, character numbers and mm -hmm. like really like in introspective kind of more so than I think you would normally uh, think in a musical. And it, it's funny because I was reading about Sheldon Harnick and Yip Harburg was a mentor of his and or a sort of idol of his and apparently gave him the advice to write character numbers for and comedy numbers for Broadway and I'm like you know he did that beautifully anyway that is all to say my favorite character is Sipos okay unpack that talk about why because and honestly when before I read the script again I had a different one in mind I was like oh 100% it's going to be uh Kodai because I just I kind of love a sort of like unrepentant you know playboy villain um 
the character but, you would have played in your high school production. One hundred percent. It passes so long. <laughs> yeah, I was. I would always be cast as the misogynist uh, playboy. Um, I went to an all-girls school for listeners who didn't realize that. So I as saying, I was that, tall that, and broad-shouldered, in other episodes. But if you if you don't listen to every episode, you may not know that. <laughs> yeah, honestly, I probably would have been cast on those roles even if I went to a co-ed school. I have always had a low voice and broad shoulders. Um, <laughs> So, no, Seapost I love because I feel like that character could, first of all, because he's so warm and lovable. He's just mm. such a sweetheart and such a, like, kind of the heart of that store and the heart of that, sh- the show in in many ways. Um, but also because I feel like he's kind of an unusual character in some ways because I feel like that character also often can just be a sort of device where it's like they default to being the kind of one who's like, tell me about your day you know like the kind of receptacle for the more colorful characters to be bounced off of and um i think Seapost is very much not that i think he's um fully realized in a way like and i think his song is so great because he's like you know what i i am weak and i'm fine with that and i my priorities are just that I want to like keep my job you know like he fully explains something that could come across as as uh cheap in some ways or like not fully fleshed out but because there are all these moments with him you you really do get a sense of of who he is and and um I love that and I just am always happy when he's on screen at non screen on stage because I just like you just love him. I just always love him. So, so he is my fave. I love that. I, I really do. And I think it's a great, again, he's a, yeah, to your point, like evidence of how well-written the show is too, that like a character like that is as well-rounded and as interesting and has like little truth bombs he drops on the side. Like it, it's just, it's well-rounded. And I actually, his song gets stuck in my head. I mean, all the songs yes. get stuck in my head a lot, but his, and also it's interesting, his song like leads the overture. Mm-hmm. Just such an interesting, like I, I'm sure, like in a in a you know really deep dive, deeper even than we go with this. Like it's so interesting that that like that was picked as the over. It's so interesting, but yeah, yeah, I love that answer. I do love that answer. What about you? Well, I think no one will be surprised to hear that my favorite character is uh, Miss Amalia Balish. I I love her. I love her. <laughs> I think she's great. I love everything about her. Um, I love an ingenue generally, but also this is a she's a fantastic ingenue who's not like cookie cutter. And um, I, I think it's such a great, great role, great songs. Um, and I just, yeah, I love her as a as a as a woman ahead of her time, kind of, but not. And like, um, yeah. So yeah unsurprising for me i think to pick amalia but she would be one of my she's my favorite yeah no she's fantastic so what about for you um what is your favorite song in the the very strong score yeah i mean there's so many but i've always loved alona um a whole bunch so i'm gonna say alona it it is such a good number yeah it is so fantastic and also and this almost was one of my favorite things where part of what I love about that is like first of all it's just a great tune and it's so much fun to have that guy you know whoever it is just preening throughout it um but also the fact that that's contrasted with Sipos and Arpad doing those little kind of like like undercutting how like this seduction is ridiculous is just 
makes it so much more just elevates it so much it makes it so much more fun and, and so much more complicated so um i like it on a bunch of different levels i you know i absolutely could have answered that as my favorite song um because i listen to it all I, it's uh, it's such a bot i love it it's so good also gavin creel in that revival recording oh. sounds phenomenal phenomenal yeah. um oh god he's so good he was so good. And he didn't get a Tony nom for that. Did he not? He should have. He should have. I don't think he did. But it was like that year of Hamilton. It was a very packed year, but I was like, yeah, he should have still gotten nominated. Yeah. I think for me, though, um, I love the song Dear Friend. Mm-hmm. I just think it's such a wonderfully, and nobody talks about it. I feel like in the, like, no one uses it for auditions. There are lots of songs that are like, you know, Villanelle Ice Cream, obviously iconic for a million reasons and all the stuff um she loves me great like there are tons and like try me everybody you know like but dear friend i just remember the first time like the first time like i interacted with the show like read it and then like saw it or whatever and i was like i wow what a killer like turn of lyric and it's so wonderfully tragic and like it's tragic because like we know the information she doesn't right and so like and she's just so heartbroken and so sad. I just think it's a really wonderful, wonderful end of act. Um, and sweet, poignant, but also sad. And But not so sad that you're like, oh my God. It's just like, oh my God, she wants this so badly. And it's like, there are so many, I mean, there are so many songs in this, this show that like people use for auditions and, and talk about and think about and sing. And like, this is not one of them. And I'm like, but it's, I think the best one. It's so good. Um, yeah yeah I mean it's all of these songs like not only are they great songs but they all like they give you such depth in terms of what you how much you learn about all of these characters you know yes and and that's really remarkable I mean just they're all like I mean that every musical should be like in some ways monologues put to, to, yeah. to music but like you know you just get all these details and they're they're really wonderful and that one's a really great one so what's your favorite miscellaneous thing about she loves me um you know i kind of have two which neither of which feels like particularly fun or not of novel um but one of them is i mean even though i just said the thing about what my favorite song was and it's true it's alona but i also think the 12 days of christmas is stellar um because it is i think it, it just so plays with your expectations and i think about it every year yes um, every year every year yep uh because it's so accurate and it's it's like so much funnier and sharper than it could be in the same thing and it's so like just brilliant so well, I, even I like even more than it needs to be like even no more than it needs to be yeah it, it, but like it totally is it's like it's a perfect like cap it's such an interesting little quirky finale yeah it really is um so that's one of them the other one i just have to say like i mean sheldon harnick is a is a brilliant lyricist and i think that these lyrics are so good just throughout the show but also in his in his um masterful uh like use of mistakes sometimes like not his mistakes but like there's one in um 12 days of christmas 
where it's starting to get really chaotic and you know he has the these are the sheeple who pop in time and like you know they're, they're like so frenzied that they're saying instead of these are the people who shop in time they like mess up the they can't get it right um and i i have a great fondness for uh lyrical um lyrical people working things through um and that is one like like in the in Hamilton like how you say how you see like anarchy how you say anarchy uh-huh. you know like mm-hmm. so having the kind of like anarchy that's not right anarchy like rhyming it with monarchy I'm butchering this moment but I think everyone knows what I mean like you know Sondheim obviously does it and like come play with me you know like people who are not masters of the English language at that moment either because that's not their first language or because whatever like if you can set a moment like that where you're finding the words or messing up the words well and confidently, it's one of my absolute favorite things. Um, and this is really one that is great. Uh, so, and the show has a few of them, um, a few moments like that where it's just excellent, the wit and the cleverness, but also um, the fact that they, that, Harnick is not afraid to, and, and I mean, this is a kind of a hallmark of his lyrics. I think you can see this in all of his shows, isn't afraid to have the lyrics be sort of like humble also. Yeah. They're not like yeah. self-conscious. They, a lot of them are just kind of feel like someone speaking something through even more um, than, uh, than standard lyrics usually are, especially at this time. So um they're just really great so those are my those are my two faves there's a very yeah you're right he he is a lyricist i think is like very much in the like hammerstein vein of like Mm -hmm. colloquial it feels it doesn't feel it just feels very heartfelt like there and genuine there's a genuineness i think about it all that i appreciate about him and his lyrics yeah, it doesn't feel like he's trying to prove anything to anybody. He's right. just like speaking for these characters, but also getting these moments in that are so um, real and so clever. Um, so I think my favorite miscellaneous thing, and this is like so nerdy, um, but at the end of I Resolve, which is, um, you know, like Elona's... <clears throat> after she's you know thinks she's just been courted by him in the number and then he's going to go off and not like go with her on the date and all this stuff and one talk about like a monologue turned into a great musical moment it truly is but what i think is like some musical dramaturgy what i am obsessed with is at the end of the song the button of the song is a half cadence Mm -hmm. Um, and it it's so great that it you know, like I resolve, like I will never one more day or whatever the last, I remember what she actually says, but the music is telling you that she's not quite resolved in that. <laughs> like, cause it's not actually, and this is like a very, if you're a music, it's a music theory thing to talk about cadences. Right. But, um, that it's a half cadence. It's like, no, she's not resolved. Like she may have just done this entire thing about it, but she's unsure of herself. And like that, and the music is telling you that even if you don't necessarily, you don't know that intellectually that it's a half cadence, you can feel it in the way the music actually is like telling you and giving you information about the like subtext of her character and like her inner being. And I think it's a fantastic, fantastic little like smart um, piece of composition. 
I love that so much. It's so nerdy, but I literally was like the first time I ever heard it. I was like, <gasps> and almost every time I listen to the song, I'm like, you know, da, 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 bah, I literally go half cadence. I like, yell at it. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. I love it. I love it. That will bring us to our penultimate segment, Corner of the Sky. Gotta find my corner of the sky. Where we talk about this show's place in the musical theater canon. So we've, uh, you know, obviously we've alluded to this and this, this always happens in this segment. We've alluded to parts of this throughout the entire episode. But I think She Loves Me's Place is like, for i'm gonna say for like the real ones for the real musical theater like lovers it's like that is it's it is like a oh you know she loves me you love she loves me okay you're like a real musical person (laughs) it's like i feel like that is it's like niche is like we all know that it's like it's our little secret it's like the musical theater world's like beloved little secret of a show and that is like you know you're around a theater person or a musical theater person and they're like you know what show i love she loves me. You're like, yes, correct. Like, I, I think that's, if we're going to really talk about like what its place in the canon is, because it's not as well known. And it's, while it's so well written as we've talked about and, you know, perform, you know, it, it, it is still performed. It's not like it's not performed. And it is kind of having at least a moment, thanks to the recent revival that was on PBS and whatnot, like companies are kind of doing it. It's having a little bit of a, a moment. Um, but yeah, I think that's like, other than it just being a perfect little gem, I'm not quite sure what else I would say, but Annika, what what do you think is its place? Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I, I think it's, I think it's one of the, I, I think it's one of the most lovely romances out there. Um, you know, I think it's my favorite adaptation of that source material. Um, Cause I have some issues with you've got mail. He just, shuts down our store that you just never resolve that okay anyway side side note side note um (laughs) maybe now i'm gonna say that it's corner of the sky is that it's it's the musical that people didn't know about until they made the really charming movie adaptation that now exists in my head i'm telling you it would be such a great little movie yeah it really would and like i can't imagine like the estates have to would have to be thrilled for somebody to ask i can't believe nobody like I can't believe nobody, like even like Rob Marshall and any of his like, you know what I really love to do? Like she loves, I can't believe nobody's like, oh yeah, let's just do She Loves Me. Yeah. Can't, I can't, I I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it either. Somebody do it. Let me do it, world. Yeah. When I transition to film. Um, Gotta gotta get to the Broadway first. Um, So, (laughs) right? Maybe, hopefully, um, if you're listening Broadway, give me a call. Um, Well, that wraps it up for our deep dive into She Loves Me. But before we go, Annika has to give us a clue about what comes next. What comes next? So Annika, what is our clue about the next show we'll be getting to know? Well, our next show is about a trio whose original names were Richard, Jonathan, and Julia. Another um, play turned into musical that we yes, will be exploring, exploring next month. Yes, we will. And uh, I'm very excited for this one. I, it's been, you know, it's, it's, I, lo- I love the show a lot. I love the yeah. show a lot. I'm excited to talk about it. It should, it will, forewarning, probably be a very long episode, but 
Yeah. (laughs) But there's a lot to discuss. But I also feel like we're just going to be, well, not just. Like we're gonna be like defenders of the show. Like people think it's not very good in some ways. Like everybody loves it, but like, oh, it's not a good show. I actually think it is a very good show. Yeah, I think so now. But but like also I feel like we are benefiting from having had people work on it actively yes, for that's true. Um a while. Um maybe I will talk about how one of the songs in this show I think shares some essential DNA with another song that is an iconic song by the same writer interesting yeah i can make a guess as to what the what the what both those songs are you're talking about i can make a guess yes i mean they both are essentially three act plays that are songs but i think the acts of the songs are actually very similar in a way that you wouldn't originally realize oh okay i'm now i'm going in a totally different direction interesting can't wait uh-huh. to stop recording so I can ask. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, I was like, well, you can find out. I can find <laughs> we out. Just can't reveal Everyone else will have to wait with bated breath. Podcast audience. That's a great, that's a great teaser. That is a great place to leave in. <laughs> yes. Although I don't know if I can do a song analysis on that particular song, particular song, because the podcast will be four hours long. <laughs> listen, but I think for this show, people would listen. Yeah. Okay. This is my guess. That's true. Yeah, maybe we'll You're do listening this. To us, like, this is one of those that people want to talk about. So, yeah. yeah. And maybe for that episode, we'll we'll start with the uh, clue for the next one and then go backwards from there. Ooh. Ooh. See what she did there. The, I love that this segment has become one clue and then us just like very like tweely making jokes to each other about what it is <laughs> but I, it does increase audience participation i get more and more people texting me being like oh my god is this a show oh my god blah, blah, blah. and that's good that's good yeah yeah actively giving ourselves notes and compliments as we uh outro the show all <laughs> right we will see you next time bye everyone bye everyone bye.